up, everyone? Welcome to this special bonus edition of the National Treasure Hunt podcast, where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts and today's very special guests. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And today's bonus episode is, for us, I think, long awaited, something we have been looking forward to ever since one Charles Seegers graced the airwaves on National Treasure Hunt back in season one. Very true. I can definitely say that I, the state has been long awaited in my heart and mind. Yeah. So... For anyone who's new to National Treasure Hunt or, you know, somehow missed our very exciting bonus episode last season, Charles Seegers, one of the story writers and executive producers of National Treasure, made an appearance on our show. He was fantastic. It was by far our most popular episode, unsurprisingly, (laughs) of our podcast. And he was so kind as to promise to bring a friend with him the next time he came on our show. So today on National Treasure Hunt, we are pleased to welcome back Charles Seegers, as well as his co-creator, another story writer and executive producer from National Treasure, Oren Aviv. Now, you all know Charles's background from the last time he was on the show. And if, again, somehow you missed that episode, definitely go back and check it out. There's amazing content there. And so early on in this episode, you will get to learn a little bit more about Oren and his background as well. But uh, after those introductions... I would say the uh, the wheels really come off and we have a really fun conversation about all things National Treasure 2 and how it relates back to the first film. I think that's the best way to characterize this conversation, Em. It was a long and winding road. But a really enjoyable one and one that we think you're really going to be entertained by as well. So what do you have to look forward to, you might ask, in this episode? Well, um, some pretty interesting tidbits about how quickly National Treasure 2 came together. And I say that with a suspicious voice because I was surprised to learn about it. Something else that you'll get in this episode is to get just a look at the dynamic between Charles and Oren. It is absolutely wonderful and their friendship is definitely one for the ages. Dare I compare them to our friendship, Emily? You may. We'll also talk about a really cool marketing project that was associated with National Treasure that I wish I had interacted with back when I was, what, 11 years old when the first film came out. And you'll also hear about how Grand Central Station almost made an appearance in National Treasure 2. All of that and so much more. Of course, including a little update on National Treasure 3. But once again, you're going to have to listen all the way to the end of this episode to get that update. So don't press that pause button. Stick around for the entirety. And once you listen to this episode all the way through, I want you all to come and chat with us on social media to tell us all of your thoughts about what you learned from Oren and Charles this time around. Emily, where are they going to do that? 
You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at NT Hunt Podcast. You will also find us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. We got your hipsters covered over there. Go ahead and give us a listen, rate, subscribe, review. And as Aubrey said, please do go ahead and send us your thoughts and comments on this episode, especially on Instagram and Twitter. We are very much looking forward to hearing what you guys think. Yes. So before we get into the content here, allow us to extend a really hearty thank you to both Charles and Oren for joining us on this episode. We really enjoyed our conversation and learning so much from you and you are welcome back on National Treasure Hunt literally anytime. But I think that's enough of us rambling, right? It's Mm -hmm. probably time to give you all what you came here for. Please enjoy this very special interview with National Treasure franchise creators, Charles Seegers and Oren Aviv. All right. Well, this is sure to be a ton of fun. Charles, thank you so much for coming back on the National Treasure Hunt podcast. And we are absolutely thrilled that your co-creator, Oren, is joining us today as well. So welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Well, Charles, I do want to quickly start with you and ask what you've been up to since we last had you on the podcast a few months ago. Well, I think uh, I think last time we talked, I was telling you guys that uh, little uh, Arts Network Ovation is uh, plugging away in a COVID world, and so we're uh, continuing to make you know documentaries about the arts and and talking to uh, leaders in D.C. about making sure that the National Endowment of Arts uh, continues to be funded and, and hopefully increased. So I've been spending a lot of time sort of on the art side and lobbying. Awesome. Very nice. And then, so Orrin, we didn't have a chance to talk to you last time, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Um... Let's see, let's go back to before electricity when I was in college at Columbia University in New York. Um, Took me four and a half years to graduate because I was working uh, for free at several different ad agencies while I was going to school. So I was working three days a week and uh, going to school two days a week. And um, my first paying job was as an assistant at Uh, an agency that handled Broadway shows where I was able to learn how to write copy and make radio commercials and TV spots. And that agency liked what I was doing and offered me a full-time position once I graduated finally from Columbia. And they offered me $11,000 a year, which of course I was over the moon to get that. (laughs) And it was all great until about six months later, the agency went out of business. And uh, so for over, I think it was nine months or so uh, that I spent trying to find another job, uh, which I couldn't. Um, So down to my last month's rent, um, I had no choice but to leave New York and uh, come back to Los Angeles to live with my parents and sort out whatever my next brilliant moves were going to be professionally. And um, so I went up to the Columbia job board and I kind of pulled one of those little tabs and um, I took a job 
driving someone's old beat up station wagon from New York back to Los Angeles. Um, and uh, so I packed up my little 512K Mac and the three shirts I owned and a jacket I stole from my brother. And um, I was ready to leave on that Tuesday. But that Sunday prior, I got a call from uh, a friend of mine who uh, I had met at that agency that went out of business. And he uh, produced all the concerts at Radio City Music Hall. And he called to say, hey, listen, I just want you to know we just hired a new ad agency, Gray Advertising. And there's a freelance job if you're interested. And I said, yeah, but have him call me first thing tomorrow. Uh, and he did. and. Um, uh, he gave me a week to do this freelance copywriting job. And uh, I took about 20 minutes to do it and I sent it back to him. And he then called me and said, look, it's only $25,000 a year, but if you're interested, we have a copywriting position open. And I said, yeah, I'll take it. So I stayed in that apartment. Um, I blew off the station wagon and uh, I ended up uh, starting work, I think it was a week later. Uh, I was there for six weeks and we pitched the ABC television account in Los Angeles. Uh, and based on my creative, uh, we got the account. And uh, much to my shock, uh, at 24 years old, I went from unemployed and unemployable to um, they immediately doubled my salary and made me a creative director. And I was the youngest creative director at Gray Advertising at the time. And um, uh, for me, it was uh, a kind of a whirlwind, mm -hmm. uh, not just because of the obvious, but also because you're thrust into a situation where everybody that works for you, and I'd never had anybody work for me before, everybody that was working for me uh, was like twice my age. And I knew they didn't have any reason to respect me, like me, listen to me. Um, and I don't blame them. Uh, I still get that same thing from my three girls, by the way. Um, but there was no, um, manual, right, to figure out how it's supposed to work. So I just focused on the work, which I loved doing. Um, and then um, uh, about three years later, the account, ABC Television, offered me a job in Los Angeles to work at the network, which I did. It was a fantastic job. And I will say I've been very, very lucky. Uh, I've had some amazing jobs. And uh, that job was particularly great. Um, uh, so when I took the job uh, working for the network in their, what they call their on-air promotions department, which means um, in my case, uh, I was responsible for writing, producing, directing, uh, essentially creating the TV commercials that would debut the upcoming network shows, the shows that hadn't aired yet. So the first thing I worked on way back then was called Roseanne, 
which you probably are aware of Roseanne Barr. So at the time it was a brand new show and it was a huge hit. Uh, I think I wrote maybe 25 scripts. They picked 11 and we shot all of them in one day. Um, the last thing I worked on and I was there for three years at ABC. Um, the last thing was uh, working on Twin Peaks Oh, wow. which was a show that uh, David Lynch created with um, Mark Frost. And um, the campaign that I did, which was, uh, uh, it was um, uh, Who Killed Laura Palmer? If you, if you recall the show, which you might not because uh, it was before your time, but um, it was a very popular campaign and um, won a bunch of awards and, and those awards got me attention from uh, the guy who was head of creative advertising at the time for Disney. Um, and he called and said, hey, you wanna cut trailers? And I was like, sure. <laughs> so I left ABC and the guy who was running ABC Network at the time, Bob Iger, who went on to become Bob Iger, and so um, I was at Disney um, 20 years. Um, so, uh, you know, I just, uh, I think just outlasted everybody, oh <laughs> everybody goodness. else. And they were probably just going alphabetically. Uh, and so they kept giving me these bigger and bigger jobs. <laughs> and I ended up running, um, Charles is laughing because he knows that's true. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I started at Disney cutting trailers and doing posters and TV commercials, the creative work. Um, I eventually uh, became head of marketing there for the studio and eventually went from head of marketing to head of production at the studio. And um, of course, I pretended to stay friends with Charles. Um, just so his seething resentment didn't get too out of hand. Uh, but um, anyway, that's, uh, that's the general headline. No, that's super cool. What a, what a story. I feel like we, yeah. were, we were saying similar what a story things to Charles last time, which is you two are both um, clearly very well-rounded and have quite a history in this industry. And I do have to ask, you know, we heard the story from Charles's perspective last time, but Oren, from your perspective, how did you get to be involved in writing and producing National Treasure and really what drew you to the project? Well, uh, so Charles and I used to meet every Friday for breakfast and we pitch each other a bunch of movie ideas every week. We'd meet at this cute little French place a few blocks from Disney, order some terrible eggs. And one day there was an LA Times story about a salvage ship off the coast of Long Beach, California. And I said to Charles, I thought it would be such a cool opening for a movie to start the film underwater. Uh, we see divers finding some buried treasure on an old shipwreck <laughs> and then they pop out of the water and that's when the camera reveals it's New York City in the background and they're hunting for treasure in the Hudson River um, and it was a cool opening for some kind of movie and uh, I will say it never made it into even 
half a draft of <laughs> national treasure scripts at any point. So other than me and Charles, nobody thought much of that opening clearly, but, um, but Ben Gates was definitely, uh, in, in, even in that early stage, an accomplished diver, I think, yeah. Charles, if I'm not wrong. And yeah, anyway, that's right. Uh, but that opening for a movie uh, pitch started the conversation about a modern day treasure hunter. And, um, and he wasn't after buried treasure for treasure's sake. He, he would be a treasure protector, which that concept definitely made it into the movie. Um, and, and, and here's the thing, and I, I, I often think about this in terms of distinguishing the Ben Gates character from any other movie character. Um, because uh, I was a history major at, at Columbia, history and English actually. And um, so making this character someone who not only knew history and studied history, but someone who revered history that he didn't know where treasures were necessarily, but he was clever and determined and thoughtful and loved solving puzzles. And here's the key, I think he, he understood the history of that buried treasure. And uh, that's what kind of started us on the road to national treasure. We really loved the idea of that character. So we brainstormed and hammered it out as best we could. And mind you, this is not what Charles and I did for a living. So <laughs> we didn't know really what we were doing other than making each other excited about a character and a story and a plot. And we thought that um, if we could make each other excited about an idea, then it would be uh, natural to assume that others would be excited by that idea. But there was no proof of any of this at any point. It was just <laughs> uh, two knuckleheads sitting there over bad eggs talking about stuff that we liked. Um, and, and, and I will also say that it, we, we were, I, I think this is true, Charles, we were very conscious to distinguish Ben Gates from like Indiana Jones in every way yep. we could and sort of personalize the dilemma that he'd be facing, which basically boiled down to how do we organically and cleverly force this smart, upstanding, thoughtful, empathetic, rather normal, but abnormally sincere patriotic guy, how do we force him into committing the crime of the century? Right, <laughs> quite <laughs> the moral <laughs> dilemma. <laughs> yeah, like how do you take everyday clues and have Ben Gates be the only man on earth who could put two and two together to make 10? And how do we twist the plotting so that this non-heroic everyday guy uh, somehow convinces himself to do something truly awful mm -hmm. in order to prevent something way more awful from happening? Yeah. So um, uh, we kind of, you know, it was very informal as 
often these things are, particularly in the movie business. Um, and so I'd gotten to know uh, my good friend, John Turtletaub uh, from working on the marketing on his movie called Cool Runnings. And um, so I did the trailer and other marketing materials and we actually became good friends. And, and Charles, of course, is good friends with them today still. Um, and he'd gotten in the habit, John, of uh, kind of stopping over at my office whenever he felt like it at Disney. And one day, um, John pops in and says, um, you know, and I, I will say just to digress, it's worth mentioning to those who might be listening, who are interested in getting into the entertainment business and the movie business and all that, that um, there was a great piece of insight that I learned and, and Charles, I, I assume you feel the same way about this, that there's really no path for success that you have to follow in order to succeed in Hollywood. You can be an assistant one day and a producer or a writer or a director the next day. There's no ladder you climb by putting one foot at a time on these rungs because there are no rungs and there are no ladders. Mm. Um, and so uh, you, you, you can't find a more important commodity than an idea. And a great idea can change everything. Um, and so I, I reflect on that in the context of looking backwards at your question of how this all came about because um, in my case, in our case, in my case with Charles, uh, you know, one day this successful director comes in and flops down on my couch. Yes, I had a couch, which is pretty great. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I could pretend sometimes to lay down on the couch and think big thoughts, oh my God. Um, yeah, which never exactly. came. Um, but anyway, um, so John comes in, he's proudly sharing with me that he just got a production deal from Disney. And uh, that was due to the success of his films like Cool Runnings and While You Were Sleeping with Sandra Bullock and others and how fun it's gonna be to work together forever. So, hey, if you have any movie ideas, just pitch them. So I said, well, I've got an idea. <laughs> and uh, uh, so even though Charles wasn't there, I told John, obviously, that Charles and I had this idea um, and I pitched him National Treasure in like 96, maybe. I, I don't even remember, but John heard the pitch. It was a very short, tight pitch. I mean, Charles, when we wrote down the pitch, uh, this is not an exaggeration, we sent it to the Writers Guild and it was one and a half pages long. Yep. So, right. uh, and there's more, there's another goofy story about that later I can tell you if you want. But at the time, John laughed when he heard the pitch. He really liked it. He said, wow, that's a really great idea for a movie. Uh, there's a treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Um, that's really fun. Wouldn't it be 
great to make that the first movie that I ever produce under my new deal. I will never ever direct that movie. There's no chance I will ever direct that movie. Uh, but that he loved to make it the first movie he produced. So obviously John ended up directing yeah. and producing that movie. And for a guy who made so many great and successful films in that moment, it's just so funny to think that John was convinced he'd never direct right. this movie. Yeah, It wasn't the kind of movie that he connected to. And so, uh, at the time anyway. Right. Um, so, uh, I think it's funny that even someone who was a professional director who heard this pitch for the first time and liked it, because he could have not liked it and said, I would never sure. direct or produce that movie. And that happens all the time. But the fact that it turned out to be not only a movie he directed, and the sequel that he directed, but they ended yeah, up being the great. two most successful movies he'd ever make. Yeah, oh my God. So it's hard to, you know, there, it, it's, it's an impossible thing to uh, think of yourself in the future doing things um, without passion. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, he developed a passion for it as he developed the script. Mm -hmm. And um, the great writer Jim Kauf uh, wrote the original draft, which when it landed on my Disney desk turned out to be so much better and so much funnier and that I, than I could have imagined. Um, yeah. Charles, did you he feel that way draft. when you first read his draft? Yeah, I did too. I, I, I felt like Jim, Jim just loves American history and, you know, he really forced, or, and if you remember, remember he forced us to make sure he could go visit the locations. You know, we, you know, I spent some time with him at the white house, literally on the white house grounds. I've got some great photos of Jim and I, but he, he did more research than I've ever seen a writer do on a project. And he, he to this day, it's his, is his favorite script to this day, literally. Yeah, and, and it took about a year for that script to land on my desk. Uh, and it wasn't like anyone was looking to me or Charles for approval. It was just standard operating procedure that the guys who came up with an idea, hey, uh, we should probably send the script to them too. Right. Um, <laughs> which is exactly what happened. And so, somehow Jim's script uh, was the talk of the Disney lot. And wow. you have to understand yeah. the situation. I'm just minding my business, cutting trailers and making posters at the time. Charles is minding either his own business or other people's business running late night programming. Right, Charles, that was your job at the time? Yeah, actually, no, I just left. I was running, um, I went over to DreamWorks Television. Oh, okay. So I certainly yep. wasn't doing production back then, just the creative marketing. And it was that Jim Kauf script that got Jerry Bruckheimer's attention. Mm -hmm. So uh, even though Jerry hadn't read the script at the time, he had heard that there was this great action adventure script floating around the Disney lot. It was all very hush hush. Um, I was hearing little things about it, but I was probably 99% focused on my job. 
and it's an all-consuming job and you're working on 20, 30, 40 movies at a time. So there's not a lot of downtime to go make another movie <laughs> or even just to hear about the progress of a given script. Um, there's an entire building of production people that that's what they do for a living. So to me, uh, this was um, in every sense of the word, a hobby. Mm -hmm. And it was stuff that was happening almost in an out-of-body experience kind of way. Um, I'd hear about my idea, Charles's idea, as if it was happening to someone else. <laughs> because I was just focused <laughs> on my job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that... and, and that's the God's honest truth. There's no, um, there's no gray area. It wasn't like I was going to quit my job and go make movies for a living that was never even for half a second That's something cool. that I thought about but cool. um anyway so so Jerry came on board to produce with Turtle Taub uh and Jerry's first move upon joining the team was to promptly throw out the script so oh. That's what happened. We, we then, yeah. uh, I don't know, cut to nine years later, uh, or was it seven years, Charles? I, I, I don't remember. Yeah, it's about that. It was like I, somewhere in there, yeah. 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 And we went through, I believe it was 16 sets of writers, uh, which you guys probably know all these details and, and your listeners probably know all these details better than I even do. Because again, I had a job, like I was, I was just on this one path that was going, let's say left. And there's this movie that seems to never be getting made that, you know, is happening on the right. Right, and right, so, right. Um, um, so by the time Nina Jacobson, who was running production at Disney back then, by the time she greenlit the film, in I think 2003, uh, maybe? Yeah, um, about, yeah. Yeah, I had by then become the studio's head of marketing, which meant I was now marketing my own film idea. That's amazing. Which Charles, <laughs> I remember Charles saying to me, wow, dude, you're both the sheriff and the saloon owner. <laughs> uh, but that also meant no matter what, I had to open my own movie to a huge number, right? So I called together everyone who worked for me, which I think at the time was probably 150 people and explained to them that if we don't open this movie, I will have failed as both a marketer and as a producer. Oh, no pressure. So if anyone on my staff ever has any ideas to help open this movie, no matter how expensive the idea or how dumb the idea, we were gonna do that idea. And I jokingly, but not jokingly at all, just warned everyone who needed to know that I was definitely gonna go way over budget on this movie's marketing campaign because <laughs> oh I wasn't taking any chances. And that's that's probably the, the the clearest version of that story I can tell you. No, that is amazing. Well, I mean, you, I, I, I do have to add, and, and you know, for, from Oren's, you know, first job is in, in advertising for, you know, the Wright Brothers Bicycle Company or whatever the hell it was, that first account. <laughs> yes, it was the, the Wright Brothers, the, correct. 
It was the Wright brothers. You said stay in bicycles when they wanted to do planes. I remember that. But they, um, the, 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 you know, choosing wisely the, the people you get involved in your project is really the clear path to success, right? You just don't know if you've chosen wisely until you're in process with them. And, and I, I have to say the, the, the knee-jerk reaction of many writers on the project, not Jim Kauf, but many subsequent writers, and, and somewhat of the Jerry Bruckheimer organization, was to put action-packed scenes in with in, in sometimes impossible puzzles and, and all of these things that, quite frankly, you would read it and go, God, that'd be amazing. But it, it started to lose, or, I mean, maybe you didn't feel this way in the beginning, but I, I felt it started to lose the charm um, of the original cough draft. And I have to tell you, if it wasn't for John Turtletaub, who, who has such a great sort of common sense way of directing and has such a, a great sense of humor that he was willing to slow, you know, scenes down um, to, to have those moments where you could breathe. And if we hadn't had that kind of instruction from John, you know, in, and then the actual production of the movie, I think the, I don't think the film would have worked as well. And that combo with what Oren was able to achieve in marketing. I mean, one thing Oren, you know, I, I, I give him so much credit for this and he barely remembers this part, but he was always fighting for clues that you could find in your pocket. That if you just looked out the window on the street, a clue was facing you. He wasn't, he was always trying to force people to say, Let's not overbuild these crazy narratives. Let's just find clues that are right in front of your eyes. And I think that was that combo between he and John were the ones that preserved the real charm of the movie. And it certainly came out of National Treasure One and Two. I mean, you, yeah. you you see that the movie will slow. It's fun. There's humor, and the clues are great because yeah. they're real history but they're not too overly complicated at the same time, the, you know? And when they do, there's sort of a wink and a nod to the audience, which made it fantastic. A dollar bill or who came up with the dollar bill? That was you. I mean, it was an amazing clue. Love it. You know, the, the funny thing about the dollar bill, <clears throat> uh, which was such a central feature of the marketing campaign, uh, because the whole idea of, um, you look at a dollar bill and you see the ones in the corners and you go, oh, it's a $1 bill. I know what those ones mean. Uh, I don't know what anything else means. And so if we provide meaning behind the unfinished pyramid and the all seeing eye and we connect it to this treasure, um, it would connect people to this idea in a very unique, special way. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that I thought would be fun, I didn't come up with the, this particular idea, um, someone who worked for me named Jay Williams did, which is um, we had these pyramid-shaped stickers 
and uh, we affixed those stickers, one each on $10,000 worth of $1 bills. <laughs> and we put them out into the world. Oh my God. And we, you know, every, every bill has a serial number. So he kept track. So this is pre Google, but he kept track with some sort of digital program uh, of tra he like traced where all these stickered national treasure $1 bills were located right. in the world. And uh, if you want to hear something super weird, and this is true, this actually happened. Um, uh, and we did this like a year before the movie opened, just to sort of seed this stuff. And um, uh, one of those dollar bills was handed to me at a Starbucks right across the street from Disney. And I'm looking at this thing, I'm going, I can't believe this ended up <laughs> in my hands. Wow. I still have that dollar bill because it's so absurd. Heck yes. That's <laughs> amazing. I know, it's kind of amazing. But um, yeah, no, we, we, some brilliant copywriter boiled it down, boiled the idea of the movie down to the clues are right in front of your eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and brilliant copywriters, brilliant writers are able to boil down a big idea, a complicated idea down into one sentence. And if you're lucky, that sentence also intrigues a viewer enough to be curious to go see that film. See, that's exactly it. I feel like the clues really added to the relatability and invited people to try to solve them along with the characters. And you can't do that if the clues are too too complex. Um, so I think I think it was absolutely perfect. I mean, obviously we're huge fans and we're <laughs> we loved everything about it. But um, so you you mentioned, you know, all it takes is one good idea. And clearly National Treasure One was that. It was a huge success. And, you know, it's not just because we're huge fans that we're saying that. It was actually a huge success. So we're obviously focusing a lot on National Treasure Two Book of Secrets in this season of National Treasure Hunt. And so I was wondering for either of you to chime in here, really when and how did the possibility of a sequel first enter the picture? Was this something that was on the table really before the first movie even came out or was it really related to the success of that film? Well, uh, I, I can answer it from my perspective and then I'm curious, Charles, we've never had this conversation, but um, so four years after the first movie came out, uh, I was made head of production. And uh, that meant that I was in the position of being able to green light the sequel to my own movie idea. <laughs> so thanks to, uh, uh, I think a quirk of timing and the schedule. So I was given that job in August of whatever year that was and uh, the first thing I did was I had to familiarize myself with all the movies that were in development from the production team. And uh, 
uh, I noticed there was nothing being developed for the sequel to the movie. And we were now three, at least three years after the first movie. And at the time, uh, three or four or five years after an original movie coming in with a sequel was too much time. Nowadays, you can do a, a sequel 20 years later, like Bad Boys, right? But uh, at the time, it was considered like you had peaked in your audience's interest for a sequel, and then it diminished with time. Um, so I felt a ticking clock for the sequel, number one. Number two, I looked at the next year's release schedule and noticed there was no Disney branded movie at Christmas that was scheduled. And usually at Christmas or Thanksgiving, you wanted uh, a Disney label movie that was a, a, a big broad appeal, usually big budget movie because those two are the two most lucrative times of the year other than summer. And so uh, I said, hey gang, where are we on the sequel to National Treasure? And everybody had blank looks on their faces because they weren't <laughs> developing a sequel to it. The first movie made $350 million. Um, the second movie, just FYI, made $450 million and cost $50 million more than the first movie. And so um, at, in that moment, we not only had an opening at Christmas for 14 months later, but we had no idea for the sequel, <laughs> let alone oh. a script. We had oh. nothing, okay? Wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we had nothing. And so um, here's what we did have. We had possibly uh, Nick Cage assume, we assumed he was, would be interested in a sequel. We had John Turltab who wasn't uh, directing a movie or didn't have a movie coming up in that window of time that we would need him. Uh, but there's a magic thing that happens when you tell a producer and a filmmaker uh, that you have a release date. And so like a, a military machine, everything locked into place and everybody was in lockstep about, okay, we have till Christmas to finish a gigantic movie for which we have no idea and no script, uh, but we probably have a star. And uh, I think at the time, since the first National Treasure, Nick Cage hadn't had as big a movie in the subsequent several years. So it wasn't like Nick was a superstar hot commodity suddenly, but I knew from all the marketing research that I had done in the prior three years that people love Nick in that movie. They oh, yeah. love his sort of quirky movie persona in virtually every movie he's ever done, uh, married to this super ordinary regular guy. <laughs> yeah. That dichotomy forced um, this amazing combination of unpredictability. Like what is this professorial dude 
gonna say or do because we know he's capable of stealing from the government and we know he's capable of doing great, amazing, unthinkable things. Um, So this time he's going to steal the government. (laughs) That's right, literally. But but here's how the process works. Um, You can't go from literally zero to a hundred in 14 months. Right. And uh, part of the reason you can't is because it takes a lot of money to reserve Nick Cage's time, to reserve the director's time, to cast a whole movie and do it without a script and with nothing to pitch anybody because there was no idea. So uh, I tasked the uh, a guy named Jason Reed, who is a great film executive who uh, most recently produced the live action Mulan uh, movie. And uh, so at the time he was working for me and he was the d- development executive on the first National Treasure. And so I said, you have 14 months. We've got to make this movie. We've got to fill our release date hole. Uh, Let's get together with Jerry and with Chad and with John and with like, let's get the all-star team together and the Wibberleys who were writing this, uh, who wrote the, the final credited draft. Husband and, and Mike Stenson, you remember Mike? Mike was of a course, great brain. Mike Stenson. I mean, there are so many names I could go on for an hour uh, with the names of all the people who uh, provided uh, immense contributions to the making of this franchise. And I would say, FYI, to any movie because it's a team sport. Sure. But the amazing thing about this is that one day, Six weeks later, Jason Reed comes into my office and says, Book of Secrets. <laughs> and I was like, I'm in, what is it? And he said, <laughs> uh, that's, that's the idea for the sequel. And so he kind of broadly pitched me what he and the Wibberleys and the executives all had come up with. And, um, uh, one of the extraordinary, um, uh, one of the extraordinary things that happened on this movie that should never happen on any movie, let alone a movie that becomes successful like the sequel was, which is the the writers, the Wibberleys, were on the set every day writing pages to shoot for the next day because no. there was no time to yep. develop a script, it was just write it and shoot it as we go. And so, hey, one of the ideas was, Nick has to do something uh, really awful again, because that's his brand. Totes. That's what he does. He's gonna do it for the right reasons. So we had to come up with the right reason, which was for his family to kidnap the president of the United States. And we had to make it plausible and believable that he could pull that off, which is really the magic trick of the first movie and the second movie, this franchise, which is 
we have to make the baloney seem like it could really happen. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's one of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking about when we're going through the films and especially looking at the history and the context of the clues and timelines and seeing how the puzzle fits together. And we've always been so impressed by how it does and 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 how and that's actually mind-blowing to me how there, the story was being written as it was being filmed because it does fit together so well. That's, that's really a tribute to all the, um, the code breakers that we employed, the puzzle solvers, Fair the enough. experts in all those areas that need to make those clues feel real. Yeah. And um, where we started was with true facts, true historical facts. And then we retrofitted the story to those facts because getting to those true historical facts, um, like let's say John Wilkes Booth, for instance, um, we just made up the stuff that led to the true history. And those are the, the elements that are not only the hallmark of this series, mm -hmm. uh, but what makes this movie and the original movie so fun. So that's actually something, Charles, I wanted to ask you about. I, I know from our last conversation that you are, um, I believe, on the board of the Ford's Theater, if I remember correctly. I am. Yeah. yeah. I so. Am. So I wanted to ask a little bit about the storyline for the second movie, especially for you with this, you know, these very relevant historical pieces in your in your daily life. How did the storyline focusing on Civil War era history and even Native American history, you know, was there any explicit inspiration for that or did that just seem like a, a logical well, I, I, I mean, it, I, I think it was a bit reverse engineered. I think we all sat around saying, you know, and, and, and by the way, a big team of people said, how do you, we already just found the treasure of the ages. So how the heck do we come up with another treasure? that's as big and, and, and something that, that has, you know, real historical resolution. So as soon as we landed, you know, on the city of gold idea, what happened is wh where would it be in America? Right. And, and one of the things I, I give a lot of credit to, to Mike Stenson, Orrin and I were always pitching these moments of history that people don't know about. And, and one of them was, you know, having a vault that was drilled literally into Mount Rushmore that was going to house titanium copies of the U.S. Constitution, of all our freedom documents. Mm -hmm. And so Orrin and I were always fascinated about Mount Rushmore and what, how could we figure out a way to make that one great iconic sort of Hitchcockian you know, tribute moment in the movie. And so when they, they came up with the, the Native American treasure, the idea of putting it in the Black Hills where Mount Rushmore was, was perfect. It all started to begin to add up. So I, I think, you know, to answer your Civil War era, you know, remember at the time, you know, we, we figure we kind of checked the box on colonial times, right? Totally. And, and when was the next sort of revolution in our country, right? Well, it was the Civil War. And 
it, everything sort of just started to point to there. And, and Lincoln is so iconic and the conspiracies behind Lincoln and the, and the conspiracies of his diary and the conspiracies around to John Wilkes Booth, you know, were, were there more than, you know, two conspirators, 12 conspirators? Was it larger? Um, all of that became, you know, part of the fabric of reverse engineering to that moment of discovery of, of where the treasure really was. Um, mm -hmm. And and the Wilkinson character, you know, was was just so iconic. You know, Ed Harris was amazing in in in, in the second. Um, he plays that so part really well. That's kind of how we landed into that area. Very cool. Yeah, that's very cool. So, Charles, I have one uh, other question for you. I know the last time you were on the show, you amazed Aubrey and I with some <laughs> really cool, like, clues and scenes that you had come up with that just, like, didn't make it into the first movie at all. Do you remember? Yeah, the one, the one that, that is my favorite, and, and Oren, Oren and I pitched the hell out of this, and it just... There wasn't room in the movie. Like pe people were going, that is an amazing clue, but it's just not fitting. But was if in Grand Central Station when they built Grand Central Station, they used photo plates from the Civil War. So when the photographers were taking, you know, hundreds of thousands of pictures on these glass plates, that that glass was recycled, meaning it was just stacked up in places, right? And discarded photos, right? So when they started building Grand Central Station, and if you go today and look at the windows, they, they used at one point some of the glass uh, photo plates from the Civil War. So you'd see these ghost images of battlefields and ghost images of soldiers. And, and we thought it would be amazing that one of the clues that led to the treasure was a photographer who had taken these photos and used it in, and, and, and later, you know, discarded them or hid them, but they were used in Grand Central Station. So the idea of Nick Cage standing in Grand Central Station amongst all these people, you know, living their busy life in present day. And he's trying to piece together these ghost images in, in the window would be like an amazing sort of clue. And I couldn't let that one go. I, I you know, Orrin was saying, we got to let it go. I said, I love this clue. <laughs> like we, we've got to figure it out. So it, it will show up in something I'm sure Orrin and I will come up with in our future. Yes. Um, but, but that was certainly one of the clues that, that, you know, to this day, it, uh, I, I just, I just can't wait to see in something. Maybe hey, we, even National Treasure Three. Maybe we love breaking news here first. So <laughs> this is, this is great. <laughs> we love assessing the clues and the story, as you know. And so, Oren, I've got to say, Emily and I might be the two people in the world who have thought about these movies as much as the writers themselves. <laughs> so because we've been, you know, thinking about National Treasure 2 so much and analyzing the films from every possible angle, we do have a couple of questions about the clues and storylines that we're wondering if you could answer for us. Um, the first question, and these are to get a little specific, but at Mount Vernon, in, in Book of Secrets, Ben, of course, has this map of the estate's tunnel system. And he claims that it used to belong to a slave named Charlotte. And 
you know, for a casual viewer, he or she might watch this and think, oh, that's a fun little reference to the name Charlotte. And Ben just happens to have this map and that's convenient. But are we actually meant to believe that this particular Charlotte, this slave was um, was really a lead that Ben followed up on when he was looking for what the Charlotte meant really prior to the timeline of the first movie? Yeah, um, you know, there are no real coincidences. <laughs> you know, everything gets thought through. You may make the wrong choice or not a great choice, but hopefully you'll make a thoughtful choice. So um, everything's intentional, including of all the women's names that you could come up with to coincidentally have Charlotte would be, you know, we would all think of it as lame if that was what we did. So uh, yeah, no, there's a, um, uh, definitely a reason and um, uh, for that reference. And the implication is that they called uh, the ship, the Charlotte, for those reasons. So, uh, or that she was named Charlotte after the ship. So there's a, uh, a necessary connection for sure. Gotcha. Um, and speaking of that scene in the tunnels, I, you say there's no coincidences, um, but we're going like really AP English literature on, sure. on yeah. these things right now. Um, so when we, were, when we were thinking about parallels between the movies and parallels with history, we, did a deep dive episode um, on John Wilkes Booth and the Lincoln assassination. And Emily and I learned when we were doing that episode that John Wilkes Booth had initially intended to kidnap President Lincoln. And I was wondering if you ever intended for that parallel between, you know, Booth intending to kidnap the president and then Ben Gates actually being the one to kidnap the president, or is that just poetic? Uh, it's both. <laughs> um, you know, the writers um, have to think through 95% of the backstory for 5% that might be in the movie. And so uh, for smart viewers like yourselves, uh, to pick up on that Parallel is sort of a fun rush for you and a fun discovery, uh, but it's not necessary mm -hmm. to draw that parallel in order to enjoy the movie. So that's a good example, maybe a great example of uh, the movie starting with John Wilkes Booth, because I think the first time you see him on, on screen you think you recognize that person. And you don't know that that's John Wilkes Booth until you're told. Right. And I think that's part of the fun in the discovery of uh, sort of the unfolding of the plot is as soon as we recognize that that's who that is and his you know, if people like you guys and me who are history buffs or are interested in researching going down that black hole <laughs> of history that um, yes he his original plan was not to kill the president it was to kidnap the president so I'm going to assume that 
Ben Franklin Gates is not only knowledgeable of that fact, but probably somewhere in the deep, you know, recesses of his brilliant mind, uh, that's what was the germ of the idea for him mm. for getting the president. So that oh. kid. Yeah, I know that makes sense. He also had already sort of kind of kidnapped uh, Diane Kruger in the first movie. So yes. <laughs> doing like a practice run of kidnapology. Yeah, they're they're basically they're basically experts at this point. I mean, like you said, in, in terms of felonies, for the right reasons, they are pro status. <laughs> so Warren, I have a question for you. I was wondering if Mitch Wilkinson, the character, was inspired by anyone in real life. I, I, my instinct is to say no, he is not. But, um, you know, Charles referenced this before. The, the thing about Ed Harris uh, and his uh, portrayal of the character, um, there's like a deep uh, seething kind of anger that he has and uh, uh, you certainly never see him smile in the movie. Um, he has a certain charm, I suppose, but not kind of what I would consider charming. Um, and uh, the reason I mention that is because Ed gives a gravity to this character. And so I'm going to assume uh, similar to how I felt about Ian in the first movie, whereas Ben Gates is friends with Ian in the first movie and they started off as friends and kind of even friendly rivals, but not even rivals. And they're not out to hurt each other. Right. They just have different approaches, right? Whereas Ed Harris uh, was never friends. In fact, he starts the movie off with an accusation that is so offensive that ultimately it leads to Ben kidnapping the president of the United States. So um, as a villain, uh, we tried to shade both in both movies, the villains to not be straight up um, dark villains, uh, but to have enough shading to make them interesting. That's one of the things about the villains that we actually recently recorded an episode uh, that was an in-depth comparison of the villains, their motives, their development oh. throughout the film. It'll be coming out after this um, this episode with you all comes out, but it's something for our listeners to look forward to. Um, but you. You mentioned some of the things that we were going into detail on in that in that episode. It's it's this real strong difference between um, between Ian and Mitch and their motives and their relationship with Ben, which is so critical. But it's it's really hard to feel zero empathy for both of them in, in the same way. You know, there's still a part of them that you're at least understanding their motive or understanding their friendship or understanding some aspect of you know their their uh their relationship with the film and i digress but um no, no, but I, I think it's important to note that um 
you know, your hero is only as good as your villain. Yeah. In a movie. And if your villain, uh, even though his um, methods might be horrifying, if you understand his or her motives, uh, it changes everything. Yeah. You appreciate why they're doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's sort of, you take a look at any of the movies, let's say that have been made in the last 10 years from Maleficent to The Joker. And those movies explain how these characters became not just bad, yeah, but why they became the way they became. Mm-hmm. So we have a better understanding and we may not necessarily root for them, but that goes back to Tony Soprano and Walter White. You know, you, you, these are characters that are anti-heroes mm-hmm. and their approach is maybe darker than you would normally think or um, uh, unforgiving in many ways, but they are also uh, incredibly interesting as a result. Totally. And I feel like also you, when it comes to Ian Howe, you don't need as much of a backstory to feel that empathy and to f- understand where he's coming from because of that relationship, the pre-existing relationship with Ben and the remorse, the, the little inklings of remorse you see in him here and there throughout the film when he's, when he's done something that might have just killed Ben, for example. Um, whereas for Mitch, since he comes off so strong from the get-go as an adversary, learning a little bit more about his backstory and his family's history with, with American history, et cetera, gives you that, that empathy that you'd otherwise be missing completely. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So a couple more of these clarif- clarifying quote-unquote questions. Yeah. Um, Charles knows this well from our last conversation, but I've got to admit to you, Oren, that I am uh, not a big fan of Agent Sadusky, and I want to know what the real relationship is between Ben and Sadusky. And there's there's a reason I'm asking this question. So when I watched the first film, Sadusky just kind of seems bad at his job, right? He lets like Ben escapes you know, and, and Sadusky is always five steps behind, right? It just kind of seems a little, eh, maybe he's just bad at his job. Um, we talked to some National Treasure super fans on a recent bonus episode of our show. And one of those super fans pitched the idea that maybe Sadusky is sort of secretly on their side because he is a Freemason. And so he, in, you know, he, he doesn't want to like get fired from his job or whatever, but he wants Ben to succeed in finding these treasures. And then when we were studying National Treasure 2, Emily and I noticed two deleted scenes. One of these deleted scenes was Sadesky wiping Ben's fingerprints off of a doorknob at the Library of Congress. But another deleted scene has Sadesky shooting at Ben on the roof of the Library of Congress. So you understand perhaps my question, what, what is the deal here? What is the real relationship between Ben and Sadusky? Not to put you on the spot or anything. <laughs> no, no, I, listen, it's, it's, 
it's open to interpretation and you have your interpretation and uh, that's fair. I, uh, from the first movie, uh, what I liked about that character is he carries himself with a certain confidence. I don't think for a second that he's not gonna catch his man. And in fact, he catches his man mm -hmm. instantly. That's true. But he is also uh, confident enough to be open-minded and he's kind of intrigued by Ben. And uh, he's not intrigued by uh, Ian. Uh, he's intrigued by Ben because what is this fish out of water guy doing in my FBI criminal world? Right. And I think that gives him a perspective on Ben where he might secretly be rooting for him, not necessarily to get away with it because he would never want to fail at his job. But I think he appreciates and respects him. So even uh, towards the end of the movie, when he has that whole exchange about, you don't understand the idea of a bargaining chip, do you? Um, he's helping him out. He's, he's giving him some tools to help him become either a better person or to prove his innocence mm -hmm. or to better understand. And so when there's that quick cut of him with the Masons, Freemasons ring, either the penny drops for you as a viewer that, oh, well, he had a deeper understanding and appreciation for the treasure than your basic normal FBI guy, which who are represented by the younger guy, Hendricks, by the way, named after the head of physical production at, at Disney at the time. Love that. <laughs> uh, but uh, those guys are, we assume, I assume good at their jobs. And he tells them, Sadusky tells them what to do. But that frees Sadusky up to not only do his job and do it well, but also have a bigger, broader view of things. And I'm sure he doesn't come across a lot of quote unquote criminals who uh, share the intelligence and the appreciation, the respect for history and of the very, and like personally objects to doing the crime that he commits. Right. So uh, he's a super interesting character, Ben Gates, for that reason. So why wouldn't Sadusky, a thoughtful, learned, uh, experienced, uh, let's call him a criminologist, um, why wouldn't he also appreciate those qualities in Ben Gates? Mm. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's a question of whose side he's on. I think he's on the side of the law and doing his job well um, and, and is competitive and is interested and is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I don't think he's a guy who uh, just because he won't let Ben Gates get away with a horrifying crime doesn't mean he doesn't appreciate why he committed that crime. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's also fair to say that his 
he has some character development sort of in the off season, right, as well. Like between the films, it's clear that his relationship with Ben isn't strictly adversarial like it might have been in the first film, right? Because because Ben goes to him to ask about the president's book and he tells him, <laughs> right? Like it's it's not even, you know, trying to throw him off the scent. Um, and- well, the thing about, about Ben Gates He's completely guileless. Yeah. Like he's not manipulative. You know, you think about any of those other uh, characters that I mentioned before, they're all super manipulative and, yeah. and almost, um, if they're not psychopathic, sociopathic in, in many ways, Ben is not any of those things. He's just like, wait, he's almost like, the brainy version of one of my favorite characters in movie history, John McClane. Like Ben is just in the right place at the right time to do the wrong thing for the right reasons. <laughs> so, you know, you can't fault him. Yeah. You actually root for him to do the thing that any other human being on earth, you would hate them. Yeah them as opposed to root for them. So that's that's a, a tightrope that that character walks. Again, I have to give a shout out to the writers because that's incredibly hard to do. Yeah. But also give the credit to Nick Cage. Like he's the most normal character he plays in a history of probably a hundred movies that Nick Cage has made. We said that multiple yes, times. Yes, said that. <laughs> like, you know, he's, he's off kilter at best in so many other roles. And in this role, he's like just a guy. With gravitas. Yes, well, because we know that he's very well read, he's learned, he's experienced things. And everything is personal to him. Mm -hmm. And he feels the other side just as much as his own. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 it's a good uh, set of ingredients for the soup. I mean, as a total tangent, I would love to know. I, I, I have read a little bit about Nick Cage's um, sort of method and like, you know, drawing inspiration from past actors or past characters in film, et cetera. And I would just love to know if he had a particular character or person or set of character or people in mind when he was putting together this performance. But I don't know if you know the answer to that, but that's something I would die to know. <laughs> I do not. I think, um, uh, you know, in, in real life, Nick is an incredibly nice, down-to-earth guy um, and uh, in many ways close to the Ben Gates character mm. and he seems most close to that character than he does in so many other roles that I've seen him play so um, you know again credit to him for really creating a character that was unique in so yeah. many ways yeah yeah right. absolutely um, one more of these very specific questions, and I think this would be, you know, a fairly simple one. You know, we, we can't, couldn't help but notice that at the end of the first film, Ben tells Riley that Riley can determine the finder's fee on the, the next massive treasure that they find, of course, implying that that would never happen again. 
And um, so I got to ask Oren, did Riley get to determine the finder's fee on Cibola? <laughs> well, I think, uh, so Ben, I think turned down 10% uh, on the first movie. Mm -hmm. Riley got half a percent, mm -hmm. right? So let's figure Riley got what, $50 million out of a $10 billion treasure. I don't know. Um, but I don't, uh, I understand the question and I'm trying to like think through what a real mathematical answer is. But I think the best way to answer it might be, um, Maybe if we had another couple of months of development, we could have addressed that question in a more satisfying <laughs> way, other than the way we did it at the beginning of the second movie. So many things uh, were like throwaway things to preemptively address questions from the audience about what occurred in their lives between the end of the first movie and the beginning of the second movie. Absolutely. Uh, no, and I think we've, we've commented on the slight differences in structure of the films before, uh, completely understanding that, yeah, what happened in the interim? How do you explain the fact that Ben and Abigail are sort of adversaries in the beginning again? And, you know, how you have to, you know, lay the groundwork because you're jumping into a world that already exists compared to the first one where you are diving right in with an exploding ship, basically, which yeah. is all very fun. Um, know, yeah. The, the thing about it, uh, and you're 100% right, um, the thing about it is uh, if the two of them are together at the beginning of the second movie. Um, there's no inherent conflict, obviously. And, but uh, you're fighting the cliche of forcing them to fall in love all over again. And so, you, you know, the, these, the mechanics are a little squeaky. <laughs> and perfect. And um, so, you can tell if you look at it through that lens, you can tell that more time, even though there was no time to do it right in the perfect way, there's, there's more time that was spent on the historical plotting mechanics than there was in the advancing those relationships. They're a little, um, uh, they're rushed. And so uh, not to say that that's not satisfying or that it's not well done or that it's not fun or funny. It's just, if you, if you look at it through that kaleidoscope, uh, those elements are a little more obvious and you wanna uh, never be obvious in a movie. Sure, sure. You wanna um, be clear and you wanna make sense but you don't want to have the audience be ahead of you. Yeah, no, but all of this makes sense too in that for these movies to make sense, the puzzle pieces, the clues have to fit together pretty seamlessly. So it, they you know, must. it's, it's they logical for a lot of time to be spent there. <laughs> you know, you know, part of the trick in the second one was, and I think um, Bruce as the president was such a great casting choice because 
not only do you like him and respect him, but he likes and respects Ben too. Yeah. (laughs) So there isn't a moment where I don't think he's the real president. And those acting choices and the excellent writing from the Wiberleys, uh, again, with pages that were probably handed to him the night before or that morning, there, there is uh, a deep appreciation that they have for each other and they know in a common way, uh, in a, like in, in a commonality way is probably a better word. They know where right is and where wrong is. And each of them know that the other one knows that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there is common ground between the victim and the kidnapper <laughs> in this case. And he's not like, they do each other favors. Yeah. It's just a, um, so playing with the audience's expectations, the audience thinks the president is gonna react one way and no, that's not the way he's gonna react. Yeah. And I think that that's true of Sadusky, since you brought him up. And I think it's true of Ian, and I think it's true of Ed Harris, and I think it's um, uh, true of Helen Mirren. Mm-hmm. Like there are um, uh, so many uh, opportunities for all of those characters, and that's a lot of characters to balance in, in any given movie. With a um, lot of big names too. A lot of big <laughs> names, and that's, like, I don't know how directors do it. Like yeah. the unique skill set. Um, but yeah, you can't, you can't let a character um, uh, ideally uh, do the things that you expect them to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to put them in a situation where they deliver the unexpected. And uh, if you can do that, the audience gives you points for even if you fail to at least make that attempt. Right. Yeah. No. No. That's it's really uh, interesting insight into you know character development and carrying a world through multiple iterations in a franchise. Um, speaking of multiple iterations in a franchise, yeah. <laughs> can't transition more seamlessly than that. Um, no. I predictable seamless transition. <laughs> so I I warned you that we'd be asking about National Treasure 3. And then before Emily actually asked the question, which was the most requested question we got from listeners on social media, I feel the need, as I did last time with Charles, to pitch you some ideas for National Treasure 3. Right. For your consideration. No, no judgment here or there. I should warn you that any ideas you say to me, you cannot sue me if we use any of those ideas. You heard it here first, folks. I grant these ideas and I uh, will not sue if you take any of them. That is <laughs> terrible <laughs> advice. To give. You don't understand how badly I would like to think that I had something to do with the production of National Treasure 3. I understand that that's the motivation. 
but <laughs> but in, in the interest of time, I'll keep yeah. I'll keep my ideas brief for you as well. You know, when Charles was on last time, I pitched him this elaborate idea for incorporating the capital stones. So if that's of interest, like check out check out that episode. It's some good stuff. I don't um, like to listen to Charles's voice unless I'm <laughs> I, I'll, I'll do it for you. I appreciate that. Um, so uh, here, here are my, my new thoughts for you. Depending yeah. on what you know time period you go with for this treasure hunt, some yeah. ideas include the Salem Witch Trials, the George Washington Matildaville, which is a bit more niche that I think people could be really interested in for the, the DC area. Uh-huh. And our super fan listeners, when questioned, were really interested in seeing the Gold Rush or the American West incorporated in some way. So those are those are my propositions to you. But in all honesty, Emily, I think you have a question that you would like to ask Oren. Yes, Oren, can you provide us any kind of update with the current status of National Treasure 3? Uh, is that a yes or no question? Um, can I... <laughs> Um, you know what? Uh, I don't have any news. I think the reality is that, um, as with any Disney movie, there is um, uh, a big, big mouth to feed with Disney Plus now. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's also the question of a theatrical release for a movie that in all likelihood is going to be expensive and doesn't have ancillary value, let's say, because there aren't a lot of toys, you know, there's, there's not a, you know, how many miniature Mount Rushmore's are you going to sell, you know, so um, there are business considerations, but ultimately uh, I'm a fan, like you guys are fans, like your listeners are fans and I'd love to see uh, a third one, um, partially because it's been a long time and I want to uh, experience a new adventure with the characters that I've come to know and love um, that are part of this franchise. And part of it is it's a very rich, deep uh, well of interesting information and uh the challenges that exist that were set up in the Book of Secrets, um, like the world is our oyster in terms of ideas. Mm -hmm. So whether it's the capital steps or, you know, some other um, uh, either location or historically interesting um, uh, treasure, there are so many opportunities, but um, you know, they call it show business for a reason, and we have to sort of honor the people who make those decisions. But uh, if it was up to me, I'd snap my fingers, and I happen to know you can make a great and memorable National Treasure movie in 14 months, even without an idea. So right, right. No yeah. one can tell me that we can't see this in theaters, you know, next Christmas. But um, who knows if there's going to be theaters open next week? Yeah. Right. No, that makes perfect sense. True. 
That makes it makes perfect sense. Um, for what it's worth, we will continue asking for it on in the social media ethers. And I can tell you there is a large community of people that are so eager for it to happen when it does. So it certainly will be met with a lot of excitement. Um, but as we begin winding this down, Oren, we would love to subject you to our classic speed round where we challenge you to answer sort of you know, random this or that style questions about your personal opinions on this franchise that you've created. Uh, sort of first thing that comes to your mind. And for this round, we are going to give you the speed round that we gave Charles last time to hear how your answers compare. So are you ready? I am ready. Okay. If you could play the role of any character in National Treasure, who would you pick? Um, you know, I absolutely love Riley because Justin Bartha doesn't get enough credit for like instantly, the second he comes on screen, you have no idea who this character is and what his relationship to Ben or Ian or anybody else is, where he comes from or what his skill set is. I instantly love that guy yeah. because he's funny. And the thing about that, that actor, um, and I also think just, you know, if you're gonna, um, if you're gonna point out someone to root for, that's an interesting character, Riley, because typically he would be reduced to, he's the comic relief in the movie. But in fact, he stands in for the audience. He's the one that doesn't know any information, doesn't know any facts, doesn't know any history, maybe doesn't really appreciate it even, but like the rest of us, he's heard of some of these things and uh, he wants to know more. Yeah. 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 So uh, as a stand-in for the audience, I think Justin does an incredible job of making me care about him. Yeah. And really, love him like I'm protective of this guy in a unique way that I'm not worried about Nick Cage he's if he goes to jail he'll be fine if Riley goes to jail he's screwed <laughs> truth true that oh my gosh um do you have a favorite quote or scene from either movie I am um I am a particular fan of those heartfelt, I think powerful moments, uh, like when Ben stops the action uh, in Philadelphia and has that moment that this, the last time this was here was when someone actually signed it or when they're in the rotunda of the National Archives and he says something like 180 years and I'm three feet away. Like it gives me chills even thinking about those moments because they are the most real and the essence of not just the plotting, but these characters, mm -hmm. and particularly the Ben Gates characters. So mm -hmm. I, 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 I'm partial to those. Great. Do you have a favorite filming destination from either movie? You know, there's nothing like, and you know this, Aubrey, there's nothing like Washington, D.C. There's a, yeah. um, you know, you can't help but 
walk outside and feel history, feel surrounded by it and, and influenced by it and you're somehow part of it. And so there's a different energy level even in an empty city that it probably has been for the last year to an extent and um, uh, all the political strife and all that. But, you know, when you see the Washington Monument, when you walk by the White House or the Ford Theater and marvel at what you know is the history and all the history you know you don't know, uh, there's something really spectacular and special about that. We agree. And from, from a very poignant question to a very fun one, what is the appropriate number of lemons to keep in your refrigerator? <laughs> um, you know what? I'm going to say as many as possible because I think you can always make lemonade out of lemons. I love Perfect. that answer. Yeah. <laughs> what is one word you would use to describe Agent Sadusky? Gruff. Mm. Nice. What is your favorite conspiracy theory in Riley's book? Since I think even, was it today or yesterday, there was some story about uh, the Air Force uh, coming across some flying objects. And when asked about it, they said, oh, you got to talk to uh, the State Department or the FAA or something. And it was like, wait, what? What did you say? <laughs> I know we're obsessed over Tiger Woods and his car accident, but isn't this bigger news that there's like real people are seeing this, these things fly around? So uh, that would be my personal preference. That's an, that's an excellent answer. And the final speed round question for you, Oren, I'm going to make you pick. Which film was your favorite, National Treasure or Book of Secrets? Um, as you can imagine, I have uh, uh, probably uh, quite a bit invested in both, but uh, like most people, I like origin stories. And so I'm gonna go with the first one. Fair enough. Nice. All right, Charles. So this time on the show, we're gonna give you a speed round that's very oriented to Book of Secrets, but also maybe comparing the two films a little bit. Are you ready? Okay, ready. Favorite National Treasure 2 clue? Uh, definitely the, um, the, the missing page in, in, in the diary. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. If the president's book was real, what is the one thing that you would most like to learn from it? I have to know UFOs, true or not. Can't argue with that. If you were the president and you had to hide a secret book, where would you hide it? I can tell you where I wouldn't hide it. I wouldn't hide it in the National Archives. <laughs> reasonable, very reasonable. Um, choose between stealing the Declaration of Independence or kidnapping the president of the United States. Oh, definitely kidnapping the president. Ian Howe or Mitch Wilkinson? Oh, Mitch, for sure. Out of curiosity, why? I, he's just, I, I, the actor is so good. Like, he was <laughs> just brought so much to it. No, that's, that's, that's fair enough. All right, this is, now these are going to get tough. Templar treasure or Cibola? Ooh, um, Templar. 
Templar. Got to go with the classic. And finally, Charles, what is on page 47? You know, you're going to have to wait to see uh, National Treasure 3. <laughs> there's, there, there's, we, we have a list. Ooh, that's Good fun. To Good to know. <laughs> No, this this is we kind of had a feeling you might say that, and uh, it's just getting us more excited. But thanks for uh, thanks for playing the fun speed round. As we as we wrap this up, are there any messages you'd like to share with all of the National Treasure fans out there listening to this show right now? You know, uh, I am filled with gratitude for you both and anyone who is a fan of anything that I have had anything to do with because it's always amazing to me that things that you create, like you guys created this podcast for the reasons you created it, uh, which have to do with interest and passion and doing the thing that you love. Like for me, this, these are labors of love and, um, uh, to have been part of the creation of these movies uh, and characters in some small way um, it makes me feel very special. Um, and it's less about um, commerce for me than it is uh, like for you guys. And like, I think your listeners, because everybody's busy and has a million things to do and that anybody would carve out anything more than half a second to think about or talk about or share anything that has to do with something that I had something to do with um, is really gratifying and, and um, you know, is something I can point to uh, with great pride. Yes, that was so great, Emily. Ah amazing oh my gosh I am still in shock and awe yeah no like we said early on in this episode any chance we get to talk to Charles and now Oren is more than welcome um we are just clamoring for it and we know you all um will learn something every time we talk to them as well so hopefully we can have them on again in the future because a guys, we have so much more content planned for you. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, but you know, I, I just want to reflect on what we both have, have just experienced, Emily, and just state and get it into the ether, how much I love when anytime Charles or Oren say something in one of these conversations that feels like this big picture, non-obvious point that we have noticed ourselves and mentioned in our episodes. And it's like getting validation from the people who started it all, you know, like how much Ben's story and actions are rooted in his devotion to his family or the difference in the villain structure and the importance of Ian being friends with Ben and, and Mitch being an adversary from the get-go. Like these are all things that we've commented on ourselves. And I love that. <laughs> they are something that I have to say that I absolutely love was the whole Grand Central Station mm. story and the fact that that could have been a clue. I can, as he was talking, 
I was picturing Ben Gates standing in the middle of Grand Central Station and just like this shot where like he's still and you can see all the people walking by him relatively quickly and him just staring at the windows. Um, that I think, you know, they promised us that they would get it into something. something. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to seeing that uh, eventually. And hey, now everyone knows where that comes from when they do see it in something. You know, they heard it here first, right? <laughs> um, I also really enjoyed how much Oren was talking about Nicolas Cage and his acting in this particular film. Um, you know, he commented on how this is sort of, quote unquote, the most normal Nick Cage role. And we've definitely said that before, but I found it really interesting how Oren perceives Nick Cage in real life as probably being pretty similar in personality to Ben. And so that's mm -hmm. something I, I don't think we've thought about before. Definitely not. So guys, if you, like us, had favorite parts from this episode or anything really that you want to comment on or tell us about or want us to relate back to Charles and Oren, because we definitely can do that, please go ahead and follow us on social media. You will find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. And our podcasts, including the episode that you are currently listening to, are available on platforms from Spotify to iTunes to SoundCloud. Go ahead, rate, subscribe, review, whatever you can do on those platforms, and keep in touch with us. Yes, please do that. And once again, allow me to say thank you so much to Charles Seegers and Oren Aviv for joining us on this special bonus episode of National Treasure Hunt. We hope to have you both back on the airwaves with us again soon. And until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt. Thank you.